Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello! Listen, you smell something? Hello and welcome to the Mighty Motion Picture Rangers. I'm Shane. I'm Johnstar. We're filmmakers, we're fans, and we are figuring out just what the fuck a director does this week. Uh, You may have noticed that Josh is not with us. He has passed away. His (laughs) duties to our guest host slash producer, Zane C. Webber. That's me. I'm here again because Josh is terrible. No, no. He died. No, 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 look, he's, he's he's in rehab. He's He's got a... A crippling addiction to smashed avocado on toast. So oh, that's, that's why, why he's so poor. That's yeah, why he's so poor. Sense. Like I mean, he tried to buy a house, and then that's when the intervention happened. So yeah. we we wish Josh all the best. And if you are suffering from an addiction to smashed avocado on toast, you can call one eight hundred avoid a disaster. That's one eight hundred and whatever the numbers are that correspond to those letters. Talk to Tony Abbott. Like, I'm sure he can talk you down. From he oh. seems to have a good idea of what the Australian public needs and yeah. wants. Oh, goodness. Well, anyway, we shall start off this episode, as usual, by asking, what have you been watching? Chancellor, what have you been watching? Ooh, see, I, I need to avoid talking about the things we watch together. No, you can talk about it. Bring okay. it up. Okay. Well, uh, in that case, well, let me well, start Well, the off elephant with... in the room, the, the, the big one, which is Star Wars, The Last Jedi, I assume. All three of us have seen it. We right. have. As Zane, you just saw it uh, last night. Was last it last night? night? Last yes. night. Oh, so you're fresh from it. We saw it. We went to the midnight. We saw screen. it like two days ago. It's not that. <laughs> Is it? It feels like a week ago. I was just been like sitting in in the mood of it. I we- mean, by the time they start listening to this podcast, it'll be like two, three weeks ago. Yeah. So we can spoil away. Uh, it's really interesting because we. Did- uh, 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 are we spoiling? Yeah. Why not? I think we have to spoil. We have to spoil. To talk about it. Okay. Cool. Uh, we did. We always interesting. We did the midnight screening and we saw um, the Force Awakens right before The Last Jedi so it was really interesting because I got to I got to sort of look over The Force Awakens again and I fell in love with that movie even more I know it kind of has this weird <laughs> hate relationship people really don't retroactively like disliking no, it they what? Act- they hate what it. people are you talking to fans they say well the biggest one is that they say it's just a rehash of A New Hope like they've just it's the train run, the desert planet, the orphan child, all of that kind of thing, and the mentor dies and all that kind of stuff. But watching it again, none of that's true because once you start trying to actually, because the whole idea is that like Ray is Luke and yeah. Han is this and that. When you actually start making like like drawing the lines and trying to make analogs, it doesn't work out because Ray doesn't do the trench run. She doesn't blow up the thing at all. She doesn't even really participate in that. She's no, she's not a hero. Well, no, and she does the Obi Wan fight where she fights the villain at the end, and 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 Finn doesn't have an analog in in from the the old series. I think he's going to be yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I reckon he's going to be really crucial to the plot because he's not a Jedi, but he's really important. And so I don't know. I reckon there'll be something playing out in the ninth one, and they'll probably have to use him a lot more. Seeing as rest in peace, Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. Space, yeah, so what did you think of The Last Jedi, Chance? Uh, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, it's funny because I've been, 
I've been hearing a lot of people making complaints about it. Like uh, I had one person said that uh, they thought it was trying even harder to be like the original Star Wars trilogy. And I can only think of one moment, the, the only time, because I, I love the whole idea of the poetic, uh, uh, the poetic rhyming, how each stanza, one, four, and seven, all rhyme, two, five. Wait, wait, what? It's a whole thing George Lucas went on about. So, the, the whole thing that you were talking about with how um, uh, seven is just a rehash of four. It's the same with the first one. If you if you say the plot of the Phantom Menace vaguely enough, you're explaining the plot of the fourth and seventh movie. Kid on a desert planet who's an orphan uh, ends up finding out he's a Jedi or they're a Jedi. Uh, they end up running away and uh, someone ends up blowing up a big space thing. Uh, so they put it oh okay yeah the blockade yeah don't they so if you say it vaguely enough you got all three and it's the same but then the last Jedi does not remind me of the attack of the clones at all only very specific moments. The only one that like bummed me out because I guessed it so early on was spoiler alert when Ray goes to um uh goes to Snoke and that and it was all a big trap set up by Snoke. I saw that coming. Oh, but I think even if, even if you one. hadn't seen anything ever, you'd see that it was a big trap. I mean, it was really obvious it was oh, a so trap. It was, I thought like, it wasn't intended to be a surprise. The surprise was another big spoiler. It was like yeah, yeah. getting rid of your big bad halfway through the movie. Snoke <laughs> kind of carking it. But I thought that was, that was to me, was the moment where I realized that this movie was going for things that you weren't expecting. broke away from the formula that we've seen yeah. before. This. Yeah, this kind of, and even just the formula just in movies in general where they make such a big deal out of things that aren't really that important. And they did it to do character because killing Snoke really elevated Kylo Ren's character from being sort of this whingy kid to he's still a whingy kid. And that's what I kind of like. He's he's a villain and he's so not human. good. He's so human. Yeah, he's yeah. such a he's just child. He's really conflicted. Yeah. Really it, it, that is his character archetype. It yeah. is what Anakin should have been. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. God. Yeah. It, it's true. I, I try and I, I texted Chance the other day <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I feel like, I feel like Kylo Ren is Trump. I feel like you can't ignore the kind of effect that, because he's like, there's infighting in the regime. He's childish. He wants to just abolish anything from the past legacy. Like, the First Order is Trump, Snoke is Bannon. Who's uh, George? No, no, Reese, no. Sorry, George I thought, Reese. I thought, I figured um, uh, Domino Gleason's character, Hux, General General Hux, Admiral yeah, Hux, Charlie Weasley was, yeah, Charlie Weasley. <laughs> uh, I figured he was, he was Steve Bannon because he's like the, he's the really, really Hitler esque archetype. Kylo Ren's not I so think much. He's the one keeping it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he wasn't the mastermind behind it all. I think he's the one that kind of the people in line. I can't remember his name. It's not Sessions. Uh, the uh, whatever there yeah. is, there is, there is. Uh, yes, Mike Pence. You can draw. Yes, Pence. There you Pence, go. There um, you can draw parallels to the current political mm. climate in the US, and I think specifically that is backed up in that the first order is all men. The rebels are all women. No, 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 no. Phasma. I mean, they got rid of her, but uh, yeah. spoiler alert. <laughs> okay, yeah. Phasma is the one, and I guess Poe is the one. I mean, <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the rebels, uh, it was it was interesting though as far as parallels because I 
I thought I saw a lot of Mad Max Fury Road in this movie. Yeah. And I said to Chance, when Fury Road came out and we saw it and we were raving about it, I was like, you know what? I reckon this movie, give it like two years or so and you'll start seeing other filmmakers pull from it. And because this entire movie is a pursuit. Yes. The entire movie is a chase. And I was like, 100% was seeing it in The Last Jedi. One of the things that didn't really land with me with this movie is that the chase didn't feel as genuine as it did in... That's true. I think because it was the space and the yeah. fuel, and then the fact that they they deviated, like Finn and that just buggered off to a casino for like twenty minutes. I think that was important for the characters. It's important for the characters, but if we didn't keep cutting back and forth, yeah, yeah, and if there was like just, I would. <laughs> there is one point in this movie where they put a number. To yeah, to the they should opposition. not have put a number there. I yeah, reckon. there are there are thirteen speeders coming at us. What do we do? All we've got are these massive artillery weapons. <laughs> what happens now? What really annoyed me is that the number of the transport ships going down to the planet seemed to keep changing, right? And that the exploding oh, yeah. ones didn't seem to matter. matter. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have important. Well, they, like it did the one time when they exploded, and I thought they legitimately spoiler alert again <laughs> killed Leia. Yeah. And then she f- floats to a door and then that's never addressed for the rest of the movie. I feel like they'll go into it because apparently the plan was to have, you know, Force Awakens was Han Solo, Luke was The Last Jedi and then the, the ninth one was going to be about Leia where she was going to oh, be the centrepiece yes. of the narrative Poor and they planning. can't do that anymore. And I figure that's what... <laughs> Poor planning. Poor planning, yes. Poor space mom. <laughs> they didn't plan for death. Um, but... It, I don't know. It, 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 I had a lot of fun. I think there was a couple of moments in it visually that just blew me away. I think what, like, I mean, Laura Dern's character was MVP of that movie, oh, hands yeah. down. Yeah. And when she light speeds into the <laughs> that, thing, that, that is that, the moment where I was just like, this, this is awesome. It was this is probably one of the best scenes in cinema this year. Yeah, yeah. it was absolutely spectacular. Like I was a bit annoyed because there was a bunch of people in our cinema that started laughing at that and it kind of broke up because they, they pull all the sound away. There's yeah. no sound on that sequence and it was, I, I like I'm getting chills right now talking about it because it just visually it was spectacular. But they had, you know, I thought the salt planet was such a clever visual thing to do and I thought uh, when Ray fights Kylo in the Red Throne Room, using that red backdrop on that just visually it is a really impressive yeah yeah it was i was i was worried because when it started i was like i wasn't seeing anything cool and I'm like oh no they were just holding off for these it's also moments. something we didn't really see in i guess in, in the force awakens oh no you did oh like the big tableau kind of moment yeah they were absent but what i thought was really interesting it was more it, consistently because like I, I felt like the Force Awakens more consistently was like everything's kind of looking pretty cool and big, whereas last year I had like moments like held where off and then was like boom, looking yes, fucking yeah. that. I thought because I I, I kind of watched the Force Awakens and I realized there was this thing that JJ Abrams is doing. I like given a name to. I'm probably gonna like write a video essay on it just because it was really fascinating. I called it um, depth staging, and he does this thing where he keeps throwing what you're looking at to right up near to the camera to right far away from the camera, or like over and over again, and uh, it it really added something just to all the dialogue scenes and it was really interesting how that was completely absent from The Last Jedi. It still worked and The Last Jedi had great visual moments but it, when seeing that gone, like, because you just watch them back to back, it was really interesting because that's like, that's, a, you know, coming into our topic, that's kind of what a director does is they bring that thing to it and you can have the same story, the same kind of stuff around it but when you change directors, stuff inherently changes. 
<sighs> so what else? What else do we watch? We watched um, the disaster. The artist. disaster artist. Yeah. And Zane, you haven't seen that one. You, I haven't. I'm dreading watching it. Have I know you, I have to watch. Have it. you read the book? No. Listen to uh, listen to the audio book because Greg Sestero reads it and he does a really great Tommy impression in it. Does. My problem is not the text. My problem is the room and Tommy Wiseau as a person. Like I just don't think it should be a thing. It, but I, it is a thing and I'm, I'm going to watch it. You know what's interesting <laughs> is that I agree with you on that and what's really interesting about the disaster artist is they sugarcoat it Oh, they do. That was so my much. only problem and I totally see why they do it. I... I had the same problem with The Martian. It's a movie where I felt I should have watched the movie first and then read the book because when I've got the book in context, I'm like, all I'm seeing is the stuff they're glossing over, they're not showing. Whereas if I watch the movie first and then read the book, I'm like, oh, there's more to this. Yay. Uh, Because there were so many things that Tommy did in real life, which is like super fucked. Mm. And they just didn't show that. Um, I think, but I think it works. Like I'm always of the the opinion that I'm happy to have a film change the facts mm. if it makes it a better film. And I think for the disaster, it makes it a much better film because it becomes less a story about how weird is this thing and how weird is it that everyone loves it, and then it becomes this inspiring movie about not giving up. Yeah. And I kind of I prefer that. I know that like you know, I'm in the minority with that. There's a movie called October Sky. Have you have you seen it mm-hmm. with Jake Gyllenhaal? And it's about these kids who like build a rocket, like this small town like mining America, and they build a rocket and they win a science fair. And it's this big like inspiring. They want to get out of there, and it's this big thing. And then it turns out the true story is that the guys didn't win the science fair. They lost. They stayed and had pretty miserable lives in their small town for the rest of their existence. And I'm like, that would just make a, such a shit movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's that thing where, you know, like what kind of satisfaction can a viewer or a, a reader, I guess, if it's a book, get from an ending like that? What do you get from that? You're better off. It's it, when, uh, what's, how's the saying go? When when you have to choose between the fiction and the, it's if it's from the, 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 the Western with Jimmy Stewart, the Who Shot Liberty Valance. No, he was all. Uh, oh, he's, go, 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 when no. you have a choice between tr- the truth and the legend, print the legend, something like that. Um, I, I prefer that, and, and that's why I like the disaster because I just had like an idiot grin on my face the whole time because there oh, was a lot of. I did. I it was, did too. It was. It was very, and it was you know having just had my film not perform maybe as well as I'd hoped. It was a very good uh, feel good movie for yeah, me. Yeah, the thought. problem is the public. Yeah. Take that, the public. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to do uh, the biopic of Shane Anderson's Red Curtain Hell <laughs> in 10 years when everyone's watching going, what the fuck is Because we didn't have anything weird go on and the movie I don't think particularly stands out as anything like weird and... Incest? And, but maybe, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's I still remember that. the t- table read when we read that scene and we all like moved back a foot. <laughs> well, that's the thing is Kieran put that in there and he says nothing makes, because he was like, you should do this. You should have the dad kiss his mum. And and he was like, you know, the nothing makes an audience more uncomfortable than incest was literally Kieran's <laughs> quote. And it was just the best thing I'd ever heard because you can like chop people's limbs off. You can do all that. But if you have incest, people just freak out. Uh, anyway, so was there anything else either of you watched? I've been binging Black Mirror. Nice. In, the, in the lead up for the, the new season. Had you, because you, you, I know you watched it like ages ago. You were watching it when I was watching it, like back before it was a thing. Because yeah, it, when it was first released. Oh, you fucking hipsters. Well, no, no, because it hit, the only reason it hit is because they 
got onto Netflix in America and then suddenly all the Americans watched it and they realized how genius it was and then it exploded. I was watching it as it was released the first Yeah, season. I start, I yeah. caught on uh, on episode two of season two. I say that like there's a heap of episodes. There's only like three there's episodes three seasons, seasons. yeah. Um, <laughs> and the first two seasons, like three episodes a pop. But I, I watched, because I watched it because I heard the deal that Robert Downey made to buy the rights to something. So I went and back and watched it. And I was like, what is this? My brain cannot handle it. I'm so pumped for the new season. I think the last season was really good. I think, yeah, yeah, 100%. Season one was hard to follow. And so I think I didn't give season two the time of day, but season three was just great. See, but season two, for me, White Bear is one of the best episodes of the whole show. That just, that, that, that fucked me up because they have these episodes that really put you thinking something. Like in season three, it was Shut Up and Dance. I remember watching that yeah. one going, it's going to, and I was like, oh, this is fuck. But I mean, it's just porn. The kid, the poor kid, he's a little embarrassed. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. He's a <laughs> pedophile. It was, it just, it fucks you up because it gets you to care about things and then reveals something about it. And you feel so sorry for the kid. And then suddenly yeah. you're like, oh, I don't want to feel sorry for you anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then I think, I think my my favorite, like White Bear, San Junipero. Yeah, uh, I loved uh, Nosedive. I thought Nosedive was the best directed of yeah, all, all of the episodes. Um, but that's Joe Wright, who's like a brilliant. He's got a movie coming out. I'm dying to see that one. Uh, this is the Darkest Hour with Winston Churchill being played by Gary Oldman. You, know, you, oh, yeah, you yeah. would think that dying to see so many movies, you would be dead by now. I know, right? Hey. I just well, I need to see all of them before <laughs> I die. So I. Um, uh, anything else? No, that's it. Okay. I've just been rewatching my 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 picks for like the the films of the year and just kind of uh, reassessing whether or not they're good. And, you any know, of, the, any of them, change. you were like, "Oh God, why did I like that one?" I love that feeling uh, when I realized I had terrible taste. I think I think both Moonlight and Lion have fallen in my esteem. I see. I watched Lion. When it came out on cinemas, everyone was like, I thought it would be just this blatant Oscar bait thing. I fucking hated that movie <laughs> so much because to me there was points visually. I think it's really interesting to pair it with something like Slumdog Millionaire because vi- from a visual standpoint, yeah. I will, yeah. you know, this is touching on our topic here, what a director does is that visually all through like the poverty scene, it, to me I read it as poverty porn. It was look how bad these kids' lives are and look how amazing Australia is. It was a giant... Tourism Australia ad, but on top of that, Isn't whenever that every Australian film, pretty much. But when they're looking at those kids, the camera is at a higher angle, looking down specifically, and that bugged me through it because the difference with the director like Daniel Boyle is he puts the camera at their feet, yes, and he runs yeah. with it, and it's not it's not this bleached like uh, that's the other thing that bugged me. Like India is a very colourful place, even if it is there's a lot of poverty and stuff. It's a very bright, colourful, alive place, and they didn't do that. They just stripped all the colour. They stripped out the the life out of that place to make it look really bad. Then there's that scene in the middle, that one got, where there's he's about to go to Australia, and there's this little orphan girl, and she's like, yes. "Where are you going?" He goes, "I'm going to Australia." And this orphan girl who's clearly never been to Australia, she goes you'll love Australia it's the greatest place in the world and then they cut to Australia and that just I lost my shit with that movie for that yeah coming back and watching again I pretty much agree with you it's 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 good performances I'll give you that like yeah and that's what won me over the first time Mm. is because I'm I'm much more I'm much more focused on character and performance than I do on like cinematography and and kind of direction well that's where you kind of come from you come from a theater and then when you you come back and you watch it 
with knowing all the characters and performances, I do pick up on that, and it's kind of like, okay, I see what you're doing here, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> how did so. you? How, what did you like? Because what did you think of Moonlight? Because I had I had mixed feelings about one. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it the way everyone else um, seemed to love it. I, I liked it. I did. Other people liked it a lot more than me. <laughs> a lot, more. a lot more than me. Uh, I don't think it didn't deserve the Oscar. You don't think it? So you I don't do think it. it didn't deserve the Oscar. So you think it deserved it? Yes, I think it's one of the movies that did deserve the Oscar. But again, it kind of like, again, going back without the romance of seeing a movie for the first time and watching it a bit more analytically, it's... it's it, There's it not a lot for. to it because it's like, it's like yeah. two hours long but not, nothing really happens. I thought I loved, I loved the cinematography of it. I loved the way they shot it. I loved... The middle section was the best section, yes, I thought, yeah. and especially I the that's, performance that's of um, hand down uh, the the kid, the other kid, the one who gives him the hand job on the beach. Yes, he, <laughs> I can't remember the actor's <laughs> name. I wish uh, Jarrell Jerome. That's his name. He's a, he's the best. He, as far as I was concerned, he was the best actor in the whole movie. I didn't get the love about Mahersha Ali because he didn't do anything that I couldn't see a bunch of other actors doing. But yeah, I, I kind of I haven't gone back. I haven't revisited that movie because I was I was in, pretty infatuated with La La Land. So there was a bit of a rivalry between. I those was two. also infatuated with La La Land, <laughs> um, but that is because I am a musical person. Oh, yes. but see, I saw <laughs> that. Us, I, all three of us musical people. Pretty much, mm. pretty much. I saw I saw La La Land like eight times at the cinemas, and it didn't get worse every time I watched it. And that's a hard thing to do because that's the most time I've seen anything at a cinema. But yeah, it manages. It manages the La La Land specifically manages the audience emotions. Yeah, really well, like a musical should. Like it starts out <laughs> super happy, and then you go on this great journey, and then you kind of like fall off, and then it ends in a nice place. Yeah, like it, more. I think it. That's what it took from musicals. Yeah, rather yeah. than actually just putting singing and dancing in. In the, the yeah 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 <laughs> it was really good. Um, so as far as things I've been watching, I watched uh, I watched the killing of a sacred deer, which I fucking didn't like. When you right. said that, it just sounded like you you like wandered upon it. Sacred like, deer, like oh man, people just, killed yeah. a sacred deer. Oh wow, oh, no, it's a movie from a guy. I can't remember his name. He did a movie that you like called The Lobster, mm. and I haven't seen The Lobster, so I maybe wasn't prepared. Because he basically had all the actors in The Killing of a Sacred Deer speak without any inflection whatsoever in this really bizarre dialogue that's kind of just really... It feels like worse than a first draft. It feels like they improvised, wrote it down, and then that's what they had the actors do, and then he gave them no inflection. No, it's just... Like, it's an absurd... Like, this Killing of a Sacred Deer is this absurdist supernatural thriller, and I believe The Lobster's like a supernatural romance. Yes, yeah. Um, Well, The Lobster's basically about... Uh, it's a society where you have to be in a relationship and if you're not in a relationship at a certain period for a certain period of time, you get turned into an animal and you can choose the animal. Uh, and he chooses a lobster and something. He chooses a lobster, but it's basically the story of him going to this asylum where people are meant to find their perfect match and live happily ever after and him pretending to be in love with a woman and then finding her insufferable and turning into a lobster. <laughs> Whoa. Spoilers. That's, that's, he doesn't turn into a lobster Whoa, in the movie. It just, I'm assuming they cut before it even happens. Like it ends before. There's a whole resistance and thing that happens. It, it's See, it's the, the kill- an exploration. Of like- <laughs> well, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, it's it's a thrill in the way that there's a guy, Colin Farrell's in it again. He plays a surgeon who accidentally went drunk to a surgery and killed 
uh, the father of this kid who, and he's had a relationship with this kid, giving him like gifts and stuff to keep him quiet about it. And then it turns out that Colin Farrell's family is cursed and they will be paralyzed and they'll bleed from everywhere and then they'll die unless he kills one of his family members to make up for what he did to the kid's dad. And it sounds like to me, if you'd approach that like traditional cinema, that would actually be a really fascinating movie, but they just, uh, visually it was really cool. They did some really cool camera stuff, but just the performances they told the actors, they clearly given the instruction for the actors not to act at all, no emotion, no inflection, nothing. So there's only like one scene where Colin Farrell's yelling where it was kind of intense and then everything else is just like, why don't you go and do this? Okay, I'll do this. You go there. Here's a tea. It was painful and this movie's like two hours long. It's very, that sounds very similar to The Lobster. The Lobster. Yeah, I think that's um, his style as a director. Yeah, I think he does that so that it's not about, because these movies are not about the characters so much as the concept and the ideas yeah. that they're exploring. So I feel like I should remake The Killing of a Sacred Deer and just do it like a normal movie. I think because I think because <laughs> I think the plot itself is really good, but it kind of ends very uh, what's the word like with no. It's not very big. It's very with a whimper. Anticlimactic. That's the one, it, which I guess is the point also of his whole stuff. Um, but yeah, anyway. So I also watched uh, a Netflix movie called The Incredible Jessica James which oh. was really fun. It's, I wish visually it could have been better, but it just tells this really good story. Jessica Williams is the lead in it and she's phenomenal. Like where the fuck did she come from and what else has she been in? Um, and she's about a playwright in New York and she's kind of struggling with things and she falls in love with a, a guy played by the, what's the name, the Irish man from uh, the IT crowd. Yep. He's in like everything. He's in the Sapphires, you know, the guy I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd, that's it. And it's a really interesting romance comedy and she's brilliant in it and then i saw a movie called freaks from 1932 uh that old it's, gemstone it's a, it's a weird film it wasn't that like banned from a whole bunch of countries because it sure was, too, was was it yeah it was yeah. too graphic back in the day yeah oh okay well i know i found out about it because guillermo del toro had talked about it yeah i loved it and then it ended up on uh, edgar wright did his top 100 horror movies of uh, like ever and that was on his list as well and so i watched it based on that and i don't know if i call it a horror movie it's definitely there's some things that are quite horrific in it but i think for, it would be a thriller yeah by today's standards for 1932 it's pretty bold for a movie but it's only like an hour and four minutes long which i found was really weird but it's basically i think it was heavily um it, it was heavily censored and they cut a lot of stuff out. Oh, right. and, and then it's been destroyed. Yeah, in the it's meantime. been destroyed. Ah, okay, so. fair enough. Um, it was really interesting watching that because uh, American Horror Story Freak Show, that's, they just took everything from that movie. There is not one bit that isn't in American Horror Story that is also in Freaks. Lady and, Gaga? Well, no, she's not in Freak Gaga Show. Gaga wasn't in Freaks. Well, she's, I don't watch. But it has like, <laughs> like as far as the, the, the quote-unquote Freak Show people, it's the exact same types of freaks you see there's the bearded lady there's the person with just a torso and arms mm-hmm. i don't know if there's a proper and then there's those the twins the siblings with like the hair and the face um thing i don't like i don't know if there's proper terms where i'm probably offending someone uh, i believe they are called pinheads pinheads mm. oh my god that is that is just what they are called and it had- is a certain kind of encephalopy I don't okay. know. It's a certain disorder that doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, is some lack of inbreeding and <laughs> no, it's to do with uh, a, a lack of hormone during 
pregnancy. Oh, okay. So. Oh, and that's and that's why we have the prenatal vitamins. Yes. Um, and then it's got and it's got and the main characters are essentially two little people. Uh, it was really it was quite dark and interesting. I don't know if I loved it though because I wish I don't know. I, I keep wanting visually to there to be more. I know it was made in like 1932 when the cameras were the size of a room, so I can't really give them much credo. But anyway, that's that's what I've been watching. So I think we should move into our main topic, which is uh, what the fuck does a director do? <laughs> Because uh, I think it's a really interesting thing because uh, I have this thing where I see film critics and video reviewers and stuff and they're talking about stuff and they say, oh, the directing was bad and then they fail to ever elaborate on what they mean by the Because the, the hard thing with that is that the directing kind of covers quite a lot. It does. And it changes from director to director. Yeah. It does, which I think it shouldn't. I think because you see some directors, you know, like a lot of the actor turned directors and they always make really visually bland movies that have really good performances. And I kind of think that's a really, like, why is that? It just, I don't, I don't like it. And then you can get occasionally the good thing, like George Clooney, George Clooney you mentioned yeah. Confessions of Dangerous Mind in a couple episodes ago. Like, they can do it. There's, there's no, for me, I see that and I go, there's no excuse now to not. Director, but so what? Do, what? What does the director do? What do you think, Zane? Well, okay, I'm not. You're from a theatre background, I, I'm so you have a very different. You have, well, you have like all three of us here are directors. You've directed a lot of theatre. Yes, uh, theatre specifically, musical theatre. Um, in the theatre, a director is about getting an idea for a show and then giving that idea to a cast, which is I feel that that's a very different way, a, di- a different. Uh, a different creature than film directing because mm-hmm. in a theatre you have to give this idea to an, a group of people and then they do it all at once. You get no say once it's actually on stage. Uh, or what do they say? The, uh, the, the, sh- the director's out of the show the moment. Yes. The, they were, yeah. Once you're in the theatre, the director's gone. It's yeah. not their show anymore. It's one of the reasons why I've been so hesitant about because I've been asked to every now and then to, Direct some theatre, and I've always been really hesitant because I don't You're know what a control to freak. do. Not not necessarily that I'm a control freak. It's just that I I don't know because my whole thing when I make a film is I kind of get the actors. I like working with actors, but I'm I'm not one of those sit down and do this elaborate backstory and go beat by beat on every emotion. Where there's like complicated things, I'll normally go through it because a lot of the actors. But I could sort of hand it over to the actors. I kind of give them. I, I let them ask questions. To, and then come to me and then we can sort of sort it out. And then if there's something that doesn't work along the way, you give adjustments. Mm-hmm. But to me, I, like uh, there was a great story. One of the actors who'd worked with Robert Altman, who's one of my favourite directors, he'd like, they were doing this thing and he had this big scene in a week and he came up to Robert Altman and he was like, oh, you know, I was just wondering if we could sit down and talk about the scene. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm busy at the moment, but we'll do another day. And he comes back about halfway through the week, same thing. He's like, oh, no, I'm really busy. Can we go back in? So it gets to the night before. He goes up to him and says, mate, like, I want to talk down. We need to sit down because the scene's tomorrow. He says, if I wanted my version of the character, I would have played him myself. You go and do it. I hired you for a reason. Apparently Stanley Kubrick had that exact same thing. He would... He wouldn't really interact with the actors. He cared more about the camera. I was just—we were listening to uh, uh, what's his name from the Clockwork Orange. Um, in in McDowell, wait, Michael McDowell. Michael McDowell. Michael McDowell on the Clockwork Orange. He was saying Kubrick really didn't interact with the actors, but his whole thing was that he just trusted that actor to play that role because that's their job is to to bring that. Um, and so without like I I couldn't bring that into a theater show because I wouldn't. Well, you don't no, have there a is a saying. In my group of friends who are all theatre producers and directors, is that ninety percent 
of directing a theatre show is casting. It's like you have to get... That's the saying in film too. They, yeah. Spielberg says 90% of a movie is casting. Um, because no matter how much effort you put into an actor to bring a performance out of them in a theatre show, once they're on stage, they you might be able to shift it 10% one way or another, but it's going to be pretty similar to what you would expect from them. And so... It's a common thing I've seen in a lot of, uh, a, a lot of productions that I've been part of or that I see around as far as film goes, a lot of my friends who are directors, their biggest problem is casting. Mm-hmm. They can have a great script there. They, they got everything down packed, but they're casting always off. And I, I've been casting in things where I was literally like, you, you want me to play this character? I mean, I was auditioning for this <laughs> character. Do you know what? I think, I think a lot of the problem, because I've seen, and we know a couple of people, we yeah. won't name names. Yeah, we won't name we names. names. But I think, I think a lot of the time they go based on looks. Like, yeah. they, especially with men, weirdly, mm. they go with a lot of hot men who can't act. Because we're all gay, don't you know? <laughs> well, there's probably a lot of, like, secrets. And, but no, uh, no well, secret. well, I Wait, mean, are we talking about musicals or No, movies? no, no, just <laughs> movies just where there's, like, weird, weird homoerotic undertones in some of the movies. And I'm watching them going, oh. You know, but you know these people are young. They're they're exploring things. But no, they they well they do it with women too. You know, you see that a lot of the hot women get the roles. Everyone is just very attractive, very attractive. And I, I tend to find that there's like this this proportional thing between attractiveness of an actor and actual acting ability for the most part. <laughs> you can occasionally you will occasionally come across some that are really good. But in my experience, casting the one that's just like. The, you know, on my on my feature film, there's like the the male lead of of the show, and uh, I don't know if John will be listening to this. John played John, the guy named John played the lead, um, and he, like he's he's a very handsome man and everything like that. But there was like another person that applied for the role that was like, I mean, you you, you could see the muscles coming out of this guy's shirt. It, you know, he eats a horse every morning or something like that, and he was. Wait, is that the secret? <laughs> Probably. That's <laughs> um, where I've been going wrong my whole and, life. And I, I, I made a point of doing uh, uh, callbacks and my callbacks were specifically to pair the actors up with someone who's doing a scene and specifically that character has uh, like same-sex scenes as well as like opposite sex scenes with different characters because he's like a pansexual nymphomaniac. And I deliberately put uh, the, the character in the scene with another guy because I knew that would be the thing that where you'd most likely to run into people that were uncomfortable and you could just, this other guy just, it just fell to pieces when <laughs> this guy was trying to do, he was trying, good on him for trying, but it just was clearly not going to happen. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think casting based on looks, it, it should, and then they do it with race too. I mean, we'll talk yeah. about that in another podcast because we have a very special guest coming up sometime soon, maybe next week, we'll see. Um, uh, they cast very white all the time yeah. and I think... I think that kind of is to the detriment because a your film looks very and like monotonous, and then also people tend to cast the same people over and over and over again. But we see that going all the way up into Hollywood. So yeah, I don't know that. I think one of the other big things as far as casting goes is is like you said, getting those chemistry tests because not a lot of amateur productions do callbacks, or if they do callbacks, it's like a formality because they know they have to do callbacks. They do they do callbacks and then they just have them read more of the same scenes. Exactly. I'm like, why would you do that? Like, your you callbacks and you, even your rehearsals, I think, should be something different. I rehearsed Red Curtain Hell specifically 
different pairings of people because it was about the relationship that one person had to another. It wasn't necessarily about them getting the character. And a lot of actors, you shouldn't do that for film because if you get it in the rehearsal room, you're never going to get it on the day. I know we have a friend who, who had an actor that they rehearsed and he wasn't like a great actor, but they rehearsed, rehearsed. They got it to a really good point in the rehearsal and then they went to shoot and the guy had lost it all because he burnt it he all beats. up there. I well, think, maybe... Theatre and film aren't that different. Oh, really? Does that happen? (laughs) Absolutely. I tend to to find I prefer casting people who've done theatre work because they can nail a take multiple times in a row. They they can. For the most part, some are. The difference between when they're doing it in front of you as the director, knowing that you're going to be giving them notes, um, you're always going to get a very different product than when they are on stage in front of an audience and they fall back into, well... As everyone does, they fall back into what they're comfortable with because they're out of their comfort zone. So they go back to what they know, yeah. which is maybe what they know plus 10% of what you needed. Or Yeah. So yeah. you kind of have to overshoot. Yeah, I remember, I remember being and stuff and you always, your thing was, because I, I did a musical as and I was in the producers and your thing was go as far as you possibly can yep. and if I have to pull you back, I will, but just keep going. There was only one person I had to pull back. Who is that? Oh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to name. name. Oh, okay. I was going to say. I was, I was, uh, was it the guy with like the fruit in the middle of the room? Because that's the one thing I remember from the that. fruit uh, in the middle of the room? It might have been. All I remember was like one in of the, the middle of the scene. One of Roger Debris' people. One of yeah. Roger Debris' yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Uh, but yeah, so what? So yeah, no, they're always talking about directing, but no one ever elaborates on it. So what? What is bad directing to you? Uh, to me, when I watch a film and there's, it's bad directing, is when one scene does not fit with another, either tonally or visually or performance-wise. To me, a film director is about getting a continuous story through and unless you're doing that for a purpose then that is bad directing mm. when you're it's disjointed. I think there's a there's an interesting adage that directing is tone management. I can't remember who said it. It's like one of my favourite directors. I watched them in an interview, but it's tone management. And I think that's absolutely true because I'm always harping on about how some films are visually really bland. And it's not because every film has to have like the camera whipping around and flying and steady cams and all that sort of stuff. You can have very quiet, visual movies i think the shawshank redemption is a really good example of that where the camera is almost i like i harp on about like i hate movies that just live in over the shoulder shots and two shots when they have a really good story but then the camera work is just they said we need the camera looking at things that we need to see to understand the plot and that's it it's purely functional whereas to me the camera is um is as part of the storytelling tool as much as an actor you wouldn't just tell an actor hey just say the lines i don't care about the emotion because as long as you're saying the lines that's all we need. And they're treating the camera like that, but they would never treat the actors like that. Yeah. And it's usually a lot of the actor turned directors, but even some TV people, because they're used to just putting the camera wherever because they're on tight schedules. I don't know. It To me, bad directing is when, yeah, it's the tonal inconsistencies. And then when you start seeing the seams in a movie, either because some one part is not pulling as much weight as the other. To me, it's where it's not just good camera work. It's not just good performance. It's not just, I think, you know, that whole thing. Story is really important. I kind of came to this realization the other day. I'm like, good, great stories don't make great movies. I think great movies are great camera work, great acting, great art direction, great editing, all working to tell a great story as opposed to, you see it with the Oscar bait stuff all the time and it bugs me. I mean, you're talking about 
good directing now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, think, oh. See, yeah. when it comes to bad directing, all I can ever imagine, I'm sorry to bring it back, is The Room. Because The Room was a case where he had a professional crew that he was paying and they are professional people who know what they're doing. And that, that can you can see that. If you watch something like Birdemic Shock and Terror and compare that to The Room, yeah. Birdemic Shock and Terror was... Uh, no one was pressure. No one knew what they were doing. The room, on the other hand, it's the director who doesn't know what he's doing. And you can see that because, yeah, everything's usually bland. Tonally, it's inconsistent. Every, there's, the, the blocking is we walk into a room, we sit down, we stand up, we walk yeah. out of a room like a sitcom. Um, Even sitcoms have better, with better blocking <laughs> than the room. I think and like a good example is the fifth Die Hard movie yeah. is a really good example of a very poor job in directing because you can really clearly see at what point the director stopped shooting something and the second unit director took over to do things. There's just this very clear switch whereas a good director even when they're using second unit i know christopher nolan and tarantino do not use second units but a lot of michael bay doesn't he but he shoots like 80 setups a day yeah ever since the rock because there's one moment in the rock where you can tell it's a second unit (laughs) and he was literally like when it came to the edit it came to that point it was like well fuck second units then because it was just so obviously not him but he shoots Uh, the speed um, where he doesn't need it but i know in a really interesting point of so in raiders of the lost ark the truck chase was not shot by spielberg at all really yep that was the Wait, second the entire, thing? the entire truck chase where Indy's like going under it, all that thing. He sat down with his second unit director and they worked it out together. And the second unit director pulled in a couple of ideas that weren't Spielberg's and put it in there. But that to me is a great, like Spielberg is one of the best because his movies are so, even his worst movies are so tonally consistent yeah. all the way through. You cannot see those seams. I think, I haven't seen Always, so I don't know about that one, but uh, <laughs> there's a cool moment with a plane going over a building. So maybe it's good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that inconsistencies that make bad directing and then you can see when there's like a, a shot that really sticks out because they really wanted to look cool or something like that you see it was like a lot of random steady cam shots in stuff i mean i did a giant tracking shot too but i made it valid for story reasons i think um you think i think so i think so he sure does think uh so good <laughs> so good directing good directing good directing is managing your tone and then surprising the audience with yeah. above and beyond. Yeah. Whether that is getting a great moment between characters or like we were talking about in Star Wars, just like shocking us with visuals yeah. and then managing when they come in and what they mean to the story and how you affect the audience. The meaning to the story is a good point because a lot of the time there can be good visual moments in movies that are just, why is it there? Literally yeah. everything Michael Bay does. Uh, yes. I can't remember what movie it is, but there is this uh, movie he did where at the end it's these two people talking about the little things in life and it's shot on this long lens from behind across this, like in a mansion across this pond with this like well, the yacht going by. You know, the little things in life. <laughs> <laughs> It, it sucks. It's like, yeah, that visually looks sick, but what the but fuck I is that? Again, I, I that ties back into tone, yeah, because that is tonally disconnected <laughs> from the rest of the film. Whereas I think in, like in Star Wars, it was very. It added to the awe. Star, yeah. Star Wars, uh, spe- like I thought it was a little bit with the Force Awakens, but especially with the Last Jedi, I was surprised at how it was so much funnier than the last film but also so much more intense yes. and it didn't feel inconsistent. It 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 worked, the fact that they could bring these highs and lows and 
Which that's that's a big skill, I think. Mm. Um, and I think between both the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi, I think the way they manage set pieces, which for any other audiences who aren't aware, set pieces are those big, like in an action movie, it's the action scenes as opposed to the talking stuff. But they're the big, complicated sequences or scenes in movies that require a bunch of work to go on. I think J.J. Abrams is one of the best set piece people just ever. I mean, you watching the Force Awakens again, that first chase in from the market to the Millennium Falcon to going through there is just so perfectly executed. Well, um same with uh well, obviously Spielberg, like you were telling me how is it dual how he didn't have storyboards. It was just yeah. he planned the entire thing on a map. He what he did was they took a room. If and if you've if you've got dual on uh, DVD, there's a 20 minute behind the scenes and it's one of the best behind the scenes. He just plotted, instead of storyboards, he had a map go around the whole room of the entire, because the movie is basically a giant, a, a truck chasing a car for an hour and a half. Mm. And he drew that out in a map. Like he actually had like a map of the whole road at what point, where was, what was where and where the camera would be. And so he was able to shoot it because he had like such a tight deadline, such a tight budget. And he was on time, on budget. Because he just planned out everything like that. I think that's uh, good directors have that. I mean, they talk about a vision for something, and then a lot of people I meet who are bad directors, I've met some terrible directors, and their whole thing is that they think it's like dictating something to other people to have them be like your underlings, and that's the worst way to do a movie it's the worst way to do anything because you you're not like i mean it's literally in the world unless word. you're literally a genius but yeah, even, stanley then, kubrick, even uh, no no but see stanley kubrick see but that's the thing is that stanley kubrick's movies he was working towards the movies and when there was a point for collaboration he would absolutely collaborate the big famous one is full metal jacket that guy the 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 army guy no script got to do whatever the fuck he wanted because stanley kubrick knew that that fit the movie just stanley kubrick had he was doing very, very specific movies. If you're doing something broader, you can maybe get away with it. If you're like a Ron Howard type or something like that. But Kubrick was making very idiosyncratic movies. And so there's, uh, there's a lot less leeway for things that might not fit that tone. The tone is not, it's not so much a, a walkway as it's a, like a high wire act. Yeah. And yeah. that's what makes those, because when you pull it off, you get these movies that are just astounding, I think. Um, so can a movie have bad direction and still be good? I think it's possible and I know there is there I'm trying to think of I have an it, example. Oh, okay, okay, you go. Ghost. Ghost is a movie it's not bad direction per se, but it's not good direction. It's just very uninteresting, bland, but it has a really great yeah. script behind it and really great performances. And so it sticks with us. I don't think pe- people don't remember as much as they would remember The Shining or, or a Stanley yeah. Kubrick movie. Um, so there are fallbacks, but I think you can have still have a movie that works well without being a brilliantly directed thing. It's just very rare and it requires a lot of other people to be pulling more weight than the director, I think. Yeah, well, yeah that's the thing. A, a, a- bad director with a good team might be able to pull it off. Yeah, yeah. but I think I think I I think it's very hard to have a good movie with bad direction. If if you've got a bad direction throughout the movie, the movie's not going to be great. Like you said Ghost doesn't have great direction, but it's not terrible yeah. direction. It's not terrible. Yeah. As long as the director is kind of just sitting back and letting other people do things. It'd be, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see these movies where people have been fired halfway through and then yeah. to see what happens. I mean, we saw it on Rogue One and I thought Rogue One 
the version of the movie that they got rid of was a much better directed movie. Whereas mm. I think Tony Gilroy, is it Tony Gilroy or one at Dan Gilroy? Yeah, no, it was Tony Gilroy because Dan's the one who doesn't want a part of studio filmmaking. And um, they made a much more broader generic movie. Whereas I think the rogue one that was, that could have been was this dark, very specific heist movie. And that would, that's exactly what they pitched it as. And that's what I was so keen for. And when I didn't get that, I was so disappointed. It's interesting to see how solo works out. Oh God, Solo will be because tonally that one will be what because those two directors that they, they fight Phil Lord and Chris Miller are so like specific. They have a very specific tone that mm. I don't think Ron Howard could pull off. No, but I think that how how much reaching I think they will have reshot more than like fifty percent of the movie you watch. Well, have either of you seen Justice League yet? I haven't. I have I still have. watched Batman. <laughs> so I was forced to. Is it is it noticeable when it's like oh that's Zach that that's Zach that's Joss. Uh, yes, because they literally <laughs> smash cut between the two. It's like you 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 have uh, <laughs> you have a scene playing out, and they end on a dramatic note, and then cut. They're walking next to a lake, and it's a Joss scene <laughs> <laughs> explaining what they've just spoken about in the but last with like wittier banter. Yes, yeah, oh, exactly. Really? Yes, exactly right. It is. Super obvious exactly where they've done reshoots and where they've kind of tacked it onto the end of other scenes. It's 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 a mess. Is it like a hot mess? Hot. Is it worth seeing? Mess? No, No, it's not. It's not. It's not worth seeing. There are no exciting scenes. That's why I didn't watch. Gal Gadot doesn't even because I like Gal Gadot. I love Gal Gadot. Does a great performance. Is she in it that much? She, the, I, they've definitely put her in more. Uh, <laughs> They're but, like Wonder Woman's a success. Put her in more. The the problem. Okay, firstly, okay, quick Justice League rant because none and neither of you have seen it. Uh, the Amazons are now wearing leather bikinis. I have seen yes, that. I saw yep. that. Um, every single one of the Justice League sexualizes Wonder Woman at some point or another. Are you okay. kidding me? Yep. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there is some real weird kind of calling out racial tension. It's kind of like, that's not necessary. What, like, Please what, stop that. What like racial with tension? With Cyborg and else? Or? Isn't yeah, Cyborg? So, 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 oh, okay, yes, yeah. Aquaman's technically. Well, uh, yeah, look, it's a mess. <sighs> it's a mess. It's a mess and it's it's not well made. It's the it's most expensive valley ever. Oh, my God. See, Snyder... For all the kind of flack that he gets, he does make he had made tonally consistent movies, even if you don't like yeah. the tone that he does. I think that's the, the difference to me between because I think there's a difference between a movie you don't like and a movie that's actually bad. I think a lot of people conflate so a lot of critics conflate the two, so they'll say, "Oh, it was bad directing." You know, no, 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 the directing was good. You just didn't like the movie. Um, I think it's like Watchmen. I'm I liked it when I first saw it. I've grown to not like it as much, but it's a very consistent movie. From I think beginning that to comes end. down to when you're dealing with auteurs as well, people who write the film, direct the film, sometimes star in the film, um, <laughs> and they do one of those three a lot better than the other, and so they kind of the the, the other ones let them down. And I think that's where a good director is also a good collaborator, someone who can put their tone in other people's hands and manage that. One of the best ones for that is David Fincher, I think, because he doesn't write his scripts at all. Yes. Yeah. He yeah. always gets other writers and yet every single movie he's made feels like a David Fincher movie. Can a director make a bad movie? 
A good director make a bad good, movie. Yeah, good director. Yeah. Sorry, great uh, director yes. make a yes. bad movie. Yes, I think Batman vs Superman. Uh, Spider-Man but 3. Is, but it yeah. is Snyder. I wouldn't consider Snyder a great director. I consider him an, a, a competent, good one who's ha- occasionally had good movies, but I wouldn't put any of his movies in my top 100. I wouldn't either, but I, I think he's a good director. I just think he needs to take a step back from the actual scripting, I guess. Do you reckon he should step back from his shtick, maybe lay off the whole like weird washed yeah. out palettes a bit? I reckon he should try so. doing a... He needs to work outside of a genre that's not... We should do a How to Save and put a director <laughs> in. So, <laughs> reference to Second Date Podcast. i see a romantic comedy by Zack Schneider. Just, <laughs> just see how many ads you can put in that movie. That'd be really cool though, right? I reckon if he stepped outside of the genre that he's used to working in, it would force him to reevaluate the way he approaches his yeah. job. I reckon that would be a really interesting thing. But I think at the level that he is, like I don't think that that's something that's going to happen because you're not going to have someone dictating look like look. Well, see, but he just had a real big personal year. tragedy and that usually, I, it's really terrible Maybe. to hope for this, but I usually that makes the directors sort of, you know, Spielberg went from... Yeah. One style of film to On another. On that same note, Wes Anderson, he can have his his movies are always very similar in tone, but they can either be good or bad. Mm. Like they they're not consistently good and they're not How is it, and what bad. makes what makes a great director have a bad movie? Cuz no one sets that's the other thing is that a lot of people hack on some bad movies, but no one sets out to make a bad movie ever. Like who's you know, no one. Well, studio interference is a big that might be a cop out, but there's definitely it, it, it is a thing that happens quite a yeah. bit that can ruin a movie. But then uh, if you see like a, uh, well, I think well, my I see, but this is controversial. But like something like someone like Sofia Coppola, mm. I reckon she's a really she can be a really good director, and she's done some absolute stinkers. I hated The Beguiled so much. I love Lost in Translation. I think Lost in Translation is a masterpiece of a movie. And I'm like, how does how how do they make those missteps? Is it is it a writing thing, you reckon? When they're not working in a system where it's someone else is interfering with it? I mean, it's case by case. I don't think you can really say that it's always a writing thing. Like, it, I think it's always a collaboration thing or they get one idea in their head and they think everyone else is wrong. That's what vision? I was about to yeah. say. And it, it might be, it can be a tunnel vision thing where they get like an idea and they're like, yes, this is right. And either no one brings that up because it is someone who's uh, prestigious or they don't listen to anyone. And I think that going back to Freaks, like Freaks is, I think, when I first watched it, I, I was in uni doing a film course. And what film I, course did you do? Because my I, I did a Bachelor of Multimedia Studies. Where, so I did Introduction to Australian Film, Introduction to Film, oh Science, science Film. See, I wish they showed me more film. They All they kept doing in my film school is we watched Fight Club like a million times because that's just everyone thinks Fight Club is Welcome the greatest Fight Club movie 101. ever. Down to, <laughs> like, you're down to the detail where like the scar that's burnt on the hand is in the shape of a vagina and it's yeah, how like the one. actual true masculine thing is being fa- like all of that. So I cannot watch that movie anymore. I refuse to watch it. But sorry. I, yeah. Actually, I had one, I had two lecturers for all the film courses and they were both really good lecturers. So I really enjoyed them. Uh, yes, Freaks. But Freaks is a movie that was controversial for the time, now is revered as one of the most for, for, for thinking films. Yeah. So I think 
a director can get an idea in their head and just go, no, everyone's wrong, this is going to be great and it's going to change what film is. And maybe, it doesn't happen. Well, Hitch, it away. doesn't always Hitch, happen. <laughs> but Hitchcock had it twice uh, in a yeah, clip. Yeah, Psycho, Psycho is was... the first one. Everyone thought it was a trashy, shitty B movie. Ends up being one of the most influential movies in the history of cinema. And then Vertigo got trashed by critics. And I didn't most realize Vertigo had the same thing. I've it, heard it, all about it. It did, Psycho. but not for the same reasons. They just thought it was a, a, a sloppy, messy wank. Like they thought it was a whole lot of wank. And. Uh, he released uh, he released it, and then it was kind of. I think they reevaluated in the same year. They released it so, to the beginning of the year, and then later in the year, everyone was like, "Oh no, it's really good." I think it got nominated for like a handful of Oscars, but you know now that's revered as possibly his best movie. A lot of people consider Vertigo to be Hitchcock's best work. I, I mm. prefer, personally love Psycho, but that's like a that's the difference between like me saying a movie that I love versus a movie that I think is better. Yeah, I think. So theatre directing, I mean, we've touched on it a bit, theatre directing versus film directing versus television directing, I think is a very interesting, because it's almost like completely different work. Television directing has always confused me because I feel like the director is like a gun for hire. They are. Whereas the producers and writers, they, well, the producers usually are the writers and they are in charge of the showrunner. With a couple of exceptions, but I know they'll sit down with directors and they go through what they call a tone meeting and they basically almost dictate how you should shoot something and how you shouldn't shoot something. A couple of cases of the exception, I think, uh, True Detective, which I'm not a fan of, I think it's a very tonally consistent show because they had the one director for the whole of the first season was Carrie Fukunaga. Yeah. Um, I I loathed some of the standoffish moments like that tracking shot that's in the middle that everyone raves about. I'm like, yeah, but you keep talking about it in <laughs> zero context of what it means for the story or the characters. It's just there to say, look, we can do a tracking shot. So to me, there was moments that were classified as bad directing, but it kind of fit tonally the whole but show. I, I think True Detective was suffering at the, at the time because it was really at the forefront of like film being transferred to TV. Yeah. Like, and so they wanted to have that specific shot because that's something that's only really done in film and they wanted to put it in a TV show. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that go into directing a TV show that aren't just directing. Yeah. Like the, you, and they really you have more, more room to play when directing a TV show because there's not, do you though? Because I know, like directors will get like uh, the, the the Walking Dead is one of those shows where I mean, Frank- if you're given it, because yeah. a film oh, is yeah. like one done. That is what it is forevermore. TV show. The next week, there's another episode. Yeah. So if that episode is bad, you've got a you've got chance. You'd to have to worry that. about like I mean, certain shows require you to. I'm sorry, I've just been watching Mindhunter, watching more of that, and it's interesting, David Fincher only directed the first two, and then you go, and you can kind of see where another director's tried to do it, but they have to kind of stick to the tone that was set during the pilot. Um, That'd be hard, trying to keep up with David Fincher. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) He'd be be insane. But that that show, I mean, that show's a very quiet show, is what I'm realising, but... Uh, I know it's very much, a, especially on network TV, it's a revolving door of directors. Okay. They just come in, the guns for high. And what they really kind of do is they block a scene and say what camera angles they want, but everything else. And there's a great video of Frank Darabont going onto the set of The Shield because he loved The Shield. And he went onto the set of The Shield and he tried to talk to the actor about a motivation for a thing. And the actor said, no, mate, I think this was like season five of the show. Yeah. And he's like, I've been doing this character for five years 
that's my work. You don't you don't get to tell me what to do. Um, it's interesting seeing film directors move to TV and then yeah. seeing TV directors move to film because mm. you can tell really clearly when it happens. You see, you know, Alan is Alan, Alan Taylor who yeah. did Thor: The Dark World, which is such a generic looking movie in every and a generic tonally yes kind of movie. As where when you see like Scorsese go and do Boardwalk Empire or something. But then you also have the Russo brothers. The Russo brothers are such an interesting piece right. because but, oh, I have no, controversial no, opinions. Yeah, say it. <laughs> but because I think they they're very good at what they do, but I don't think they never have. You know, we're talking about Last Jedi. There's those moments that visually just they never have that ever. Everything they do, the closest they come is when they have something really big happening. I think like the fall of the Triskelion in in yeah. in uh, uh, the Winter Soldier is the best moment they've ever done, but. Like Civil War never had it. I don't think any of the Marvel films have those those moments that you see in Star Wars where it's just kind of like take two seconds and be inspired in to war. <laughs> the Guardians the of the screen. Galaxy, the wall of ships holding off that. That's the yes. moment. That's the moment. I think Guardians of the Galaxy. That's why I think it's one of the best Marvel movies ever made because it's such a movie onto itself. And that's why I think the problems with the second one hit me so hard because it was it just failed to do that again. It became it became part of this really generic Marvel family of movies. They don't want directors to stand out. So yeah, um, going into next notes habits about directors. How do you learn how to direct? Oh, do go it. to class. <laughs> go to class every day. Pack your lunch. I think doing it, doing it, yeah, doing, doing it's it, the yeah. only way to do it. But also knowing what you should be doing and focusing on. I think commentaries make for a really good commentaries yeah. make for a really yeah. good lesson. I so watching much, other people do it, watching other yeah. people do it, you will get an idea of whether you would be good at it or not. And then seeing other people do make mistakes yeah. and knowing where you're going to fix it, L- learning from your mistakes and other mistakes yeah. are very important. I know a few people who don't. They don't learn from others' mistakes. They only can make their own mistakes. Then they'll learn, and they do. And then there learn. are some people who don't learn from even their own mistakes. Yeah, that's that's. But I had true. like a moment in my feature where I I had this. I was convinced there was this shot, this jib shot that I wanted, and I was replicating something from Kill Bill, and I was yeah. convinced that it was a really good thing. And my cinematographer was saying, "No, that's a really dumb idea." And I'm like, "No, no." And I tried to justify it <laughs> with all these things. We set up. We took like the 10, 15 minutes to set up the jib. We go. We do the shot. I'm like fuck i'm wrong <laughs> ditch the jib let's put the camera back up there but those moments you can't be afraid to have those moments there's some points where you're going to be wrong and also if you if you're looking to get into it i think there there is nothing wrong with having coffee with someone you know who does it and asking them the questions yeah 100% like, that's that's how you learn because you if you're just like if you're like say in the theater if you're in a show with someone you are seeing 15% of what a director does when they are talking to you as a cast member. You don't see the months of planning that have gone into it, the months of arguing with the rest of the creative team (laughs) and the negotiations that have gone on with with whoever's giving you the funding and going on and so forth. And I assume it's the same with... Yeah, 100%. Because you don't see all the storyboarding, you don't see all the shot planning, you don't see all all the ideas that you have to cover with all the crew beforehand. I think the Um, thing that you can't learn... It's the thing you can't. I, not I, well. You can learn it, but through experience, David Finch had a really great. Set. He says you don't know what directing is until the sun's going down. You have five shots left to get, but you only have the time to get two. 
that's directing. And that's it's really true because it's those moments that you're making on the spot where your brain just has to click in the right way. The I editorial think, decision. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're doing, you're basically like fundamentally reshaping the context of entire movie in the span of like a nanosecond because you don't have the time to sit down and figure it out. I had like two moments like that on Red Curtain Hell, which is my feature film. Um, and I wanted more because it was it really, like, those are the moments where I really <laughs> felt like it was really, it was like a drug. I felt alive when that was happening. Hey, well, just, next time, just take four days off your shooting schedule. <laughs> see cut what my happens. shooting down and then see what happens. <laughs> oh God. Keep I think you I'm on edge worried. by just <laughs> shooting yourself in the foot. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. So yeah. if you have any questions, if you're a director and you have any cool tips or cool links, send us through. You can email us, but uh, we'll go into our... Yeah, or that's the thing. I don't... There aren't many articles on directing. directing. Yeah. Well, there's some really great, I know... DVD uh, there's commentaries. Commentaries, any commentary yeah, by Guillermo Specifically uh, yeah. Pan's Labyrinth, because he really goes into depth about the decisions and the choices he's making between one thing or the other and how it relates to the story. I think he any commentary about Pan's Labyrinth is good. Frank Darabont has a really great commentary track on the Shawshank Redemption. Um, and I'm trying to think of another really good one. I know there's a series of, there's a show called The Director's Chair by Robert Rodriguez and he sits down with the director for like an hour and talks to them about decisions and Guillermo del Toro did one which is really good but his one with Quentin Tarantino is absolutely phenomenal because Tarantino goes into a detail about how he shoots an action scene, specifically yeah. Kill Bill because he does it the, the Hong Kong style and it's really interesting to learn about that. But Honestly, like you're talking about these big names with these huge budgets. I would like to hear articles and experiences from indie directors or directors from like micro-budget films about how they do what they do. Because that, that, That's why I find people like Sam Raimi or Peter Jackson so important because, yeah, they've become big, yeah, but, but they, they started, started at that small level. And there hunt- are so many documents about... Uh, Peter Jackson and Bad Taste or Sam Raimi and Evil Dead. Yeah. There's a lot of good tips. Like you have to find the films though and then find the filmmakers and find stuff. I think I saw, I mentioned uh, last week or the week before about Beach Rats, Eliza Hitman, and I found a lot of interviews with her because I thought the visual, like the directing in that movie specifically stood out to me as really good. And I found a couple of articles and it was really interesting hearing her talk about it because they had like no lighting. They had like yeah. very limited capabilities and so it was interesting hearing her talk about it. So yeah, you, like it's not just... You are right. Don't just go to the big ones. The big ones are really good because they tell you what the things you are meant to be thinking about. But as far as how they achieve it, you sometimes have to find your own workaround. Yeah. You have to kind of go a little bit lower. But f- listen to all, listen to bad directors talk, listen to good directors talk. And what, like, I, I can't stress a lot of people say, don't watch that many movies. Watch movies, for God's sake. I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I run into filmmakers who like really want to direct and they don't watch anything. Well, especially on film, because mm. what you see is what you learn from. Yeah. Because yeah. if they make a mistake and you're like, okay, when I'm watching my film, that has to not happen. Yeah, yeah. And then even or even people who watch one kind of film and they don't, you need to broaden your choice. You need to not just, I've met people who only watch art house stuff. I've met people that only watch the commercial stuff. You need to watch all of it. You need to watch movies that you're probably not comfortable with because there might be, you know, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. I didn't like it, but there's some really cool things in there that you can steal from and replicate. And I find that's a really good way of learning how to do it is if you're, 
stealing from other filmmakers, then you can say, oh, that's how they did it. Oh, but wait. And then you start getting your own ideas. We say, oh, well, I, I, this is what they did. But maybe if I just put the camera a little to this and maybe tilted a bit, mm. what does that do to the scene? And you Plagiarize start Plagiarise and adapt. But that's, that's exactly what it is. Because that's, that's uh, Albert Einstein had the quote. He says that the, the originality is learning how to hide your sources. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a good quote. I think that's... that's well, it's also... Isaac Newton standing on the shoulders of giants. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, sure, like you're a creative genius, but you've learned through the process of hundreds of years of editing. Yeah, yeah. And it's to understand film history, I think, is a really important thing for people to get into, to look at not just recent stuff, go to the old filmmakers, because a lot of the old filmmakers were working on limitations. They had big budgets for the time, but their cameras were huge, so they couldn't move it. So that's kind of like if you don't have a dolly, what can you do? Mm. There's a lot of ways to go about doing things, but yeah. So send us your articles. Send us your articles, <laughs> yes. And your thoughts, and if you have short films, maybe. So we, we have a couple of contacts, but we'll... Uh, uh, going to our top five now, yeah. which is a segment we're probably going to be retiring soon because I found out there is a film podcast that ends every episode with a top five. Plagiarize and adapt. There's Shane. also exactly a film right. podcast that just does a top five. Really? Like, yeah, there are it's so many podcasts that just called. No, it's uh, the Film Vault. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, like it. Top five. But like <laughs> specifically like they relate the top five to something, like they do exactly so to the point. So let's do we're a top six. All right. So we're doing our four. top five directors this week because we're talking about directors. So do you want to, do you want to start, Zane, or...? Am I going one to five or are we going around five, 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 one, four, one four? One to four? five. Okay. Just because he has to be on the list, Spielberg. <laughs> he can't not have him on the top five. Yeah. He's Everyone is contractually obliged to put Spielberg <laughs> in their top five. Just for numbers wise. Like no, he's... But just he's one of the few directors. I have a direct, uh, directors on this li- on my list which are like that where I don't necessarily go to their movies all the time but they shaped cinema. Mm. Yeah. And no one's done it in the last, like I think outside of someone like Hitchcock or the people who started cinema, Spielberg is probably the biggest voice to have ever shaped the way movies are made. Yeah. Uh, And, yeah, just because the time that he's done it, that's when, yeah. And he's still going pretty strong. I think Breed of Spies is a great movie. It's a good movie. (laughs) No, the craft in that movie is exceptional. Directing-wise, it's a good movie. directing-wise. And I'm really interested with The Post. Uh, Number four is Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, Number three, Brad Bird. Nice. Really? Oh, really that's like, an interesting choice. I like pretty much all of his stuff bar Tomorrowland. <gasps> See, oh, yeah. I, I think Tomorrowland is one of those kind of underrated movies. I think it has it, problems. It got, a, it got a lot of flack, uh, but again, like, I don't think it's a good movie. Oh, okay, uh, fair yeah. enough. Um, number two, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I just right, think he's yeah. one of the auteurs that can always be trusted to give you something to latch on to. Um, you, show, you show up to his movies because of him, not necessarily because of the actor or because of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Like He's one of the names. Like I won't go to see a Spielberg movie just because it's a Spielberg movie. Oh, I do. <laughs> In fact, I, I kind of find Spielberg's movies v- very... I want to say cookie cutter, but it's not cookie cutter. It's just very expected. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm not surprised by what Spielberg does. He does it to absolute perfection, but I'm never surprised by what he does. I think if we were, if it was back in the 70s and the 80s, some of the stuff yeah, he was doing would have absolutely. been blowing. I think yeah. early Spielberg is definitely a better filmmaker. 
Oh, no, oh, no, 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 better filmmaker. I just think more innovative. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's. A- and number one, anyone who knows me will know what my number one is. Is Quentin Tarantino. His nine movies are literally one to nine of my top ten films of all time. What happens? So. Oh, see, so but he plans on doing ten and done. So when he does ten, is that that's right? Your, that's right. That's, that's, that's your top ten done. That's, uh, <laughs> I, no one ever has to ask me the question. What's your favorite again? Tarantino? Kill Bill. Kill, Kill Bill. Bill one and two. Um, it's it gets it shifts around a lot after that. Death Proof is up there. Jackie Brown is. Nice. I need also, that's the one I still haven't seen. I only have it on DVD, and I kind of want to watch it big. I feel like I need it big. I don't think it needs to be big. I, I think that's one of. I think it's one of his things where that one film that doesn't need to be seen. Okay. On the big screen, I've never seen. Oh no, I lie. I have seen it on the big screen once, uh, but. I watch it mainly on DVD and on small screen. So I think, yeah. What's what's your least, what's the one that you think is his weakest film? I'm going to say Pulp Fiction. Whoa. I think we've had this conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think we have. Um, not because it's a bad film, because it's still in my top ten. It's just, it's not the one I I. Yeah, I just don't get it. It's like, weird because that's the one that made him a thing it to is, the yeah. culture. I think um, he was big on Reservoir Dogs. My least favourite is Reservoir Dogs. It's only just because I would watch all the other movies before I'd watch Pulp Fiction. And maybe okay. it's just because I've watched Pulp Fiction a lot. Um, but Reservoir Dogs I would see before it. Inglorious Bastards is That great. is my, that and is like, amazing. Everything else is just kind of like I like more than Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Pulp Fiction still number nine. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's number nine. And, and um, do, 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 do my... Honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. Yes. Uh, Gus Van Sant. Nice. Ah, yes. uh, Wes Anderson. Gotta love his psycho. Gus Van Sant's psycho was just. I reckon the he. Best. I, I have a theory that he just did that specifically for the reason we were talking about. He wanted to learn how Hitchcock made a film, so he just did exactly what Hitchcock did to figure out how that <laughs> felt. Why not? Yeah. I know. If you had the money. And yeah. If you had know, the money, do it. <laughs> do it. Uh, Wes Anderson. I'm a huge yep. fan. Uh, Kubrick, of course. Um, Catherine Bigelow. Uh, Fincher and Hitchcock. Like, Bigelow's, cool. I, 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 I haven't seen enough of her older stuff. Her newer stuff does not excite me. I uh, have you seen, um, oh crap, what's it called? Stra- uh, I haven't Point seen Break? Strange Days, Point Break, or what's the other big oh, one that she did? The, the, the supernatural one, the vampire one. Uh, day, day, sun, something. She did Vampire One, Strange yep. Days, and Point Break of the Three I haven't seen, which is the ones that she's on, K-19, The Widow. She Maker. is like Spielberg for me. Like she's not... Innovative, but she's very good at what she yeah, does. Yeah. Have you seen Detroit? Yes. What did you think of that one? Yeah, I really liked it. Like I, th- I, I thought it was very. I mean, it was a very intense. Movie. Yeah. I'm not. I thought Zero Dark Thirty was better though. That's one yes, of my favorites. Zero Dark Thirty is probably my favorite of hers. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like like Spielberg, she does it very well. Like she's not an exciting director. Like I don't go to see her films because she directed. But when I go mm-hmm. see a film, I'm like this is. Directed well. Okay. Well, you go, Chancellor. Cool. Uh, I'll start with my uh, honourable mentions. So I've just got the two Johns, John Carpenter, yep. who uh, I pretty much love all of his films up until after Vampires. Uh, oh, well, I still love Escape from L.A. <laughs> Escape from L.A. is a thing in its own. <laughs> I don't consider it a good movie, but I love it. Uh, but everything after that, like Ghost of Mars, that was. I need to. Uh, I want it. I feel like I'm going to like that one. I don't know that one. What was it? There was that one, and there was another Mars movie that came out the same year. Um, ah, uh, the Red Planet. I think it was mm. with Val Kilmer and that. Didn't Brian yeah. De Palma direct that one. No. Anyway, 
I'm going to go ahead and put out a limb that it's probably better than Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> uh, the other one is John McTiernan, who I have liked every single movie of his because I think he got arrested for tax fraud and he hasn't made a movie in like 20 years. So He's doing one soon, but I feel like what? it's going to be bad. I know he did an ad for like Call of Duty or something and it was a pretty sick ad. Oh, really? um, but yeah, I, I love both of those. Um, moving on, I've got uh, my top five as... Edgar Wright, yep. uh, yeah. who I think, I, I, I feel cliche saying that. In our film class, it's like literally everyone, who's your favorite director? Edgar Wright. Yeah. So well, I feel bad about it. But he's another time, one that's kind of like, of course, he's, he, every film is good. But I think he's, <laughs> yeah. he also innovates because Baby Driver is so kind yes, of totally yeah. different yeah. to something like Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Um, I, my next one's also Guillermo del Toro. I find his stuff is, it's, what does he say? He, he he says that all of his stuff is visual protein. It's not oh, visual it's, it's, candy. It's not eye candy. It's not it's eye candy. Eye protein. It's eye protein. Because it looks nutritious. It's nutritious. It's it, it means something. Um, really but, looking forward to Shape of Water. Oh, oh, I cannot. I'm, I, I feel like I cried in the trailer. I feel like I'm just going to bore my eyes out for the whole fucking movie. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Uh, my next one, uh, I'll, I'll do the next two, which uh, these are the two that I learned the most from, which uh, I've already mentioned, Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. I consider them to be like the same level just because they started making like these shitty B-movies with no budget, but you can see that style. It's the same thing as watching uh, early Baz Luhrmann stuff, watching Strictly that, Ballroom. He should have been on my list. He should have. He's Baz another Luhrmann? one. I love all of his stuff. He's and as a musical... <laughs> Yeah. As a musical director, how did you not have that? Definitely in form, Spray's style. <laughs> but yeah, seeing uh, early Sam Raimi, early Peter Jackson, and early Baz Luhrmann, it's amazing to see these like very distinct styles with such a low budget, yes, which yeah. is great. Um, and then my number one is Frank Oz. I think right, yeah. the way Frank Oz handles comedy is just masterful, specifically looking at um, uh, Death at a Funeral. Because Death and a Funeral and Death and a Funeral both had the exact same script. One was doctored by uh, Chris Rock and uh, whatever. But you can see the the way he uses comedy and the way he portrays comedy is subtle but quirky. And he did the same thing in Little Shop of Horrors, which is why I think Little Shop of Horrors is so perfect. And, of course, Bowfing is like the best movie ever. So And Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Dirty which Rotten is my yeah. favorite movie. Bowfing is the one where they're making the fake movie around. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love that. You only introduced me to that movie this year. It's so good. <sighs> I love the way he does like in-camera things tricks yeah. in in little shop of horrors there's quick changes happening in the middle of a take and that just blows me away oh, so my my runner-ups my my honorable mentions i've got matthew vaughn i yeah. think he's i think as far like i would talk about jj abrams and his set piece work i think matthew vaughn does the best set pieces he's as far as like directors working today he's probably one of the best set piece people there he hasn't made a bad movie i have not i my least favorite is layer cake that's because tonally it's it's a lot less fun. It's a more serious crime drama, but it's an excellently made movie. And I think Kingsman and I think, you know, Stardust, like he's just such an interesting director and he's interesting in a field of that studio filmmaking where there's not a lot of interesting stuff yeah. happening. Uh, Busby Berkeley. He's, I, I was I was expecting Zane to say Busby Berkeley. I'm it? not a huge fan of Busby Berkeley. I think Busby, Busby Berkeley is one of the yeah. most, considering the time in which he was making movies and what he did with the camera work and what he did with the sequence, that he's very standout. He, like, he's not a necessarily a great narrative storyteller, but yeah. what he did visually was, I just watched Dames for the first time, which is the one where he did the musical sequences, mm. and they still kind of fit with 
the rest of the movie, which I thought was really interesting, but he was crazy innovative in the way he staged stuff. And I found out he did these choreography numbers and he never did a dance class. Like, how does that happen? Because it's it's all visual. It's not about movement. Well, yeah. you see, Fosse is all about these tiny synchronised movements. <laughs> Busby Berkeley is all about, like, everyone moving in the same direction at the same time with their entire extension of the body. Fosse would be on my list, but I haven't seen all that jazz yet and I really want to see that one. But um, I got uh, David Fincher, obviously. Uh, Damien Chazelle, he's only done three movies, but I loved all three of them, even his really low budget one. It's interesting, you can see La La Land and Whiplash in Guy and Madeline on a park bench. Uh, I got James Whale, horror director from the 30s who did Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, okay, he, cool. He's a good director, especially given the time in which he was making movies. I've got Nancy Myers because shout out for female filmmakers. And she <laughs> she's one of the most consistent filmmakers and her first act and the way she deals with exposition is like no one else. Uh, and then Baz Luhrmann is on my list yeah. because everything, he, you show up for a Baz Luhrmann film except yeah. for Australia. We pretend that one doesn't exist. Um, my <laughs> Controversially, top five, it is a fine movie. The middle hour is rubbish. It's a fine, it is a long movies. movie. <laughs> but it is it's not a, a fine It's not movie. a bad movie. It's just not a good one either. See, I was lucky. When I saw Australia, I uh, had to leave an hour in. Something happened and I felt like I watched a movie because... It's yeah. three movies stitched it together. Is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my top five is technically top six because I put Edgar Wright. He's in there because uh, it's Edgar Wright. I love everything he does. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, yep. the same reason I said. Uh, and then one I've put up here is the Wachowskis. Yeah. I think the Wachowskis yeah. are, we're talking about innovative filmmaking and everything they do with the exception of Jupiter Ascending has reshaped or been so forward thinking in the cinema that a lot of the times they're so far ahead that everyone hates on everything they do. Yeah. I think and then when they move to television with Sensei, they're still pushing the boundaries of narrative. That's what I think if Cloud Atlas was made now oh, rather than God. just oh. that few years ago, it would have been yeah, phenomenal. I, I think Cloud Atlas although they probably would have copped a lot more flack about the what they did with race, but I think that at least they consistently did it with all races. Yeah. They yeah. made an Asian a redhead, why not? Yeah. And uh, the one thing they didn't do, they didn't have blackface though, which I think is interesting. That was a deliberate choice, but um Cloud Atlas is in my top 10 of all time. It's yeah, just Cloud it's Atlas a phenomenal movie. movie. Um and I've got Alfred Hitchcock again. He changed cinema and we're still learning from him now and we should still be learning from him. Spielberg, because Spielberg, and then my number one is Guillermo del Toro. Fantastic, yes. The the detail in every single frame of his cinema is so much. You can never not watch his films too many times. I've I've rewatched. I rewatched Pan's Labyrinth just the other day. Have you listened to the commentary on um, Pacific Rim? Yep. That blew my mind because mm. I love that movie because it's a fun movie and like I saw little things where I was like, wow, that's really deep. And then I listened to the commentary and it just, yeah. wow. And then you watch the movie. behind the scenes and the detail he went for specifically creating scale in that movie. It, no one's done. You can see other people do giant things fighting each other. Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yeah. And they don't, well, number one, Transformers 1 does, but the rest of them don't. The, the way things carry weight in Del Toro's mm. movies, even when they're entirely made out of CGI, and that's down to him. He was saying, because there's a moment where one of the kaiju gets out of the water and they did it and he's, and you can see this video of him. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm a fat guy. If I get out of the pool, I struggle a bit. He needs to struggle. You need to see that weight of it carry through. He just, he cares about, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he's doing that and writing books and doing TV shows and still maintaining the staggering level of detail. I could, I, like, I could not hope to make a movie that. Honestly, I think it's just, 
I think him, he might he's be genius. You know, yeah, he he's might one be of those three people in a suit. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So that's my top five. So uh, that wraps us up for this week. Uh, if you had any thoughts or stuff, you can contact us. We are on Twitter at Picture Rangers. We are on Instagram at Picture Rangers, and you can email us at at uh, motionpicturerangers at gmail.com and we're also on Facebook as the Mighty Motion Picture Rangers. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Shane M underscore Anderson. Uh, I'm at Twitter at Chancellor, but I'm on Instagram at The Chancellor. Was That's there another Chancellor? Which is the better to follow you on? Uh, definitely Instagram. Oh, yeah, Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> I don't do anything on Twitter, but oh. I post so much stupid just shit Just link the two. So anything you post on Instagram just goes to Twitter. Ugh, too yeah. much effort. <laughs> and are you on, are you on Twitter, Zane? Yes, at Zane C. Weber. I'm the only one in the entire world. So. All one word? All one word. All one word. Uh, so that's cool. We, we are on and you can follow find us and find more details about other podcasts from this brilliant, brilliant network at thatsnotcanonproductions.com and they, there's like a million Twitter accounts. I do retweets and stuff on the Twitter accounts. So to, many Twitter to, accounts. To get, to get the at. So you can follow us all there. Uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.